You're listening to Minding the Brain with Dr. Kim Hellemans and Dr. Jim Davies. We've teamed up with the Canadian Museum of Nature in Ottawa in conjunction with their new exhibit, Brain, The Inside Story, to talk about some exciting topics over the last couple episodes. Today, we're bringing you a special bonus episode of Minding the Brain. We're going to follow Dr. Hellemans and Dr. Davies to the Canadian Museum of Nature as they explore Brain, The Inside Story, for themselves. And along the way, they're going to share some of their fascinating insights into the brain sciences. Enjoy. Here we are at the Museum of Nature's Inside the Brain exhibit, which will be on display until September 3rd, 2018, at the Canadian Museum of Nature. I'm here with my co-host, Kim Hellemans. We're walking around this amazing exhibit. Right now, we're looking at a very large sculpture made of what appear to be copper wires representing the neurons that little children have. And it says there, it's talking a little bit about neurogenesis. If you guys don't know what neurogenesis is, it's essentially the birth of new neurons, hence neurogenesis, birth of. And it was thought for many years that the brain, once was fully formed as an adult, uh, that we would have all the brains that we needed for the rest of our life. And essentially now this has been debunked starting around the 1960s, 1970s. We now know that even though there's a rapid period of neurogenesis, about seven weeks post-conception, uh, where the brain is multiplying and multiplying, creating many, many more new neurons. Uh, we know that even post-adolescence uh, and well into adulthood and even into aging, the brain is capable of making new neurons. So we have this beautiful illustration showing uh, what looks to be the massive proliferation of neurons throughout the period of, of early postnatal life. Yeah, it's kind of a nice, a nice uh, display because there are just thousands and thousands and thousands of wires, and you, often when you see diagrams of neurons, they're just one or two or something, and this sort of gives you a feel of the density of the whole thing in three dimensions. So we're standing in front of a display here that looks to be a model representation of a healthy human brain at the age of 82 versus a human brain uh, with Alzheimer's disease. And these seem to be appropriate models that mimic the size, but what you can see visually is that you see a massive uh, cortical atrophy. So the human, the regular human brain, if you've ever looked at one visually, has all these kind of wiggles and squiggles all over it. It's, it's very wrinkled in appearance. And these wrinkles are normally a sign of the complexity of the cortex, the very outermost layer of the brain, which essentially is like a flat sheet of, she of cells that have been crumpled up and squished in order to fit the size of the skull. And essentially, this is most of our gray matter is, that, is on, the, on this cortical layer. And as uh, somebody who may have a disease such as Alzheimer's, which is a, one of the major diseases of dementia, which involves memory loss uh, and cognitive difficulties throughout the, the aging period, uh, what you can see from this model is that you have a large loss of this cortical wrinkling. So you see a lot more spaces between the wrinkles. And this is, reflects essentially the loss of tissue or loss of brain cells uh, throughout the period of, of Alzheimer's disease. Oh, in fact, these are processed using plastination silicon techniques. Uh, 
uh, which suggests they actually are brains. That were yeah, they're models of, of real brains. They made a yeah. cast, and uh, so you can you can look at a brain with Alzheimer's, and it definitely looks like it's got more empty space, big chunks between the wrinkles, which I guess would be filled with fluid in your, uh, in your brain. No, no, it would just be air. There, well, sort of. So the the on top of the surface of the skull or the, of the cortex are layers of tissues it's known as meninges, uh, which are very thin layers of uh, basically s uh, matter that protects the brain and, and circulating between, there's three layers, the meningeal layers, and circulating between the pia, which is the one that covers the surface of the skull, and the arachnoid, which is the next layer above that, circulates cerebral spinal fluid. So you might see uh, an increase in that fluid, but mostly what you're going to see as a reflection of this loss of cortical space is uh, an enlargement of what are called the cerebral ventricles. So the ventricles are inside the brain, and that's where a lot of the cerebral spinal fluid circulates, and the brain is essentially, what the cerebrum is trying to fill the space due to loss of the cell. So that's what you'd see in a, like an MRI scan. If you scan the brain, you'd see this enlarged um, ventricular space. The very beginning of the ex exhibit has a lovely dark room that trying to make you feel like you're inside somebody's brain. It's got lots of wires and uh, staticky noise, which I assume is actually uh, probably single cell recordings or something probably, like that. Probably, yeah. I can imagine they may have, in fact, recorded this and used the, the recording for this exhibit. All right, so the brain probably doesn't actually, your neurons don't actually make any noise, but it's a sonic representation of the, the firing patterns that neurons can have. So it's a room just full, mostly on the ceiling, with all kinds of wires of different colors and flashing lights to, to suggest the, um, the activity of the, of the neurons. It, it really does seem like a Christmas light show gone haywire. Yeah. Literally. So most, most people may not know that the, the neurons of the human brain, the major cell uh, that's, that is responsible for communication, does communicate in two ways. It communicates electrically in the form of action potentials and also chemically in the form of neurotransmitters. So what we're seeing here is a visual representation of the electronic or electric communication of the human brain. And even though it's, it looks like a ton of wires and it looks like it would be really, really hard to understand, this is probably not even as many neurons as would be in a cubic centimeter of your actual brain, right? Probably Kim? not, no. And the connections is, is upwards of a trillion connections between cells, which we cannot even begin to, to model visually or even in a computer system. Right. So just as we are sitting in the dark looking at these wires, neuroscience is very much in the dark about a lot of the brain because it's just so unfathomably complicated. So what we're seeing at the beginning of the exhibit, you turn a corner and it's boom, something that scared my four-year-old daughter. It's a, <laughs> it's a representation uh, of the, the part of the cortex that is responsible for feeling and sending signals to and from, well, to and from the body. So this is known as the somatosensory homunculus, and homunculus means little, little man or uh, little figure. What we're literally looking at is a white statue about six feet tall of a person, but the proportions are all out of whack. So the lips are huge, the hands are huge, the elbow is small, um, uh, so it looks like a very distorted person. And so this distortion reflects uh, something known as cortical magnification, which is a basic process uh, in, in most species, but we'll stick to humans for now. Essentially, any organ or sense 
uh, sensory organ or um, uh, skin representation gets uh, more cortical volume the more we use it, right? So as uh, primates, we use our hands a lot to both navigate in our, or touch things in our environment and manipulate them. Uh, this is essentially why we are good at tool use. Uh, so our hands receive proportionally more cortical volume, more processing power than our back, for example, or the soles of our feet. And the same thing goes with our mouth. We, are, we have the capacity for language, so we're manipulating our mouth uh, to form speech, and we also use our mouth for eating. Uh, and this also reflects the sensitivity. So if I put uh, a tiny little hair on your lip, you would be able to, to perceive that versus if I put that same millimeter or half millimeter hair on your back. Uh, and, and that's because we don't really need our back to sense things. We need our mouth and our hands. So we're seeing an, a beautiful example of cortical magnification. Jim, can you think of other species that might have cortical magnification for things other than their hands? So uh, uh, ears uh, for animals that can move them, I think they would have larger right. ones for their ears. Um, snakes have, well they might not have more than the tongue, more than the tongue of a human, but snakes use their tongue for smell, so it would certainly have different uh, kinds of receptors. Um, a tail for a creature that has to balance, right? Mm -hmm. We only have the last couple vertebrae of a mm -hmm. vestigial a tail. Stumpy tail. Um, so yeah, and then some animals don't have cortex at all and yeah. we can get to benefit from uh, yeah. <laughs> any of that. And you can think about animals that are nocturnal. They probably don't have a lot of visual cortex, right? So their eyes would receive very little uh, cortical processing space versus something like uh, a rat, which uses its olfactory sense to navigate right. in the environment. So it would have a huge space for its, um, its nose. We are looking at a giant sculpture of some connected neurons. And I really love blowing things up to giant sizes. It really helps you get a feel for uh, the shape and what it is, especially like a three-dimensional sculpture like this. And what we're seeing are uh, two neurons that are connected. And we have lights inside to represent the uh, activity of the different parts of the neuron. So, Kim, tell, tell us about the cell body and the axons sure. and what we're looking at. So, the basic anatomical shape of a neuron is very similar. Every, every neuron has what's called the cell body, which contains the nucleus. Um, and then emerging out of the cell body are what are called dendrites. And the dendrites are essentially where the most neurons receive incoming electrical information. So, and then emerging out of the bottom of the cell body is something known as the axon. And the axon is what sends the electrical information from one neuron to another. So to review, we've got dendrites at the top that receive in information. We've got the cell body, which actually integrates the electrical information. And then we've got the axon at the bottom, which sends electrical information. And the axons are often myelinated. And what that means is that it's got a fatty layer of, of uh, cells, there are actually different kinds of cells known as glial cells, and these fatty cells are white, uh, which what gives the white matter appearance of the human brain. Versus... They, look, they look segmented. Yes, so the segmentation is um, be, due to the fact that this is probably a representation of a, a, a myelination in the central nervous system, mm. which the central nervous system has what are called oligodendrocytes, a specific kinds of glial cells uh, that wrap uh, one arm around the, the axon. So it's a one, uh, one of these little segments represents one oligodendrocyte. And the, the spaces between these segments 
are represent um, something known as uh, the saltatory conduction or the possibility for what's called saltatory conduction. Saltatory means to jump and essentially these little nodes in between the, the oligodendrocytes are called nodes of Ranvier and the electrical signal literally jumps from one node to another because the myelination resists the flow of what are called potassium ions. This is getting very complex but for those of you that are following along, <laughs> essentially what this means is that the signal can travel quicker and myelination in improves the speed of connectivity, so we tend to see myelination in, in nerves uh, uh, that require very speedy communication. So what we're seeing visually is this representation uh, underneath uh, this, this model, we're seeing actual lights flowing from one neuron to another neuron to represent that action potential traveling uh, from one cell to another and cell. And then the, the buildup of, of uh, the integration of charge is, is shown by a growing number of lights inside the cell body. It's really a, it's a lovely sculpture. We're looking at a bunch of animals and they're here to show us the different kinds of brain sizes and different kinds of nervous systems going from less complex to more complex. And all the way on the left, we have one of the simplest nervous systems around the sea slug, which looks like it doesn't even have a brain at all. And small little fun fact, um, the sea slug uh, is an animal or organism that was responsible, well, somebody who studied this went on to win a Nobel Prize. His name was Eric Kandel, uh, who was one of the first individuals to demonstrate the actual neurobiological mechanism underlying learning and memory. And he did so using the sea slug because it has such a simple nervous system containing only a handful, uh, um, about two, 20, well, 20,000 neurons, which is a handful compared to the 100 billion in humans, but 20,000 neurons. So he could demonstrate uh, very nicely this animal's response to um, uh, water and in, in these animals live in uh, on the seafloor and when water uh, comes up like in, in waves the animal retracts part of its uh, um, body in order to prevent being kind of flooded and this they learn to do this and they, they actually habituate uh, and Eric Kandel demonstrated a very uh, nice um, underlying neurobiology or the, the synaptic wiring for this mechanism. So the sea slug can learn without even having a brain. It's just, it, it's just got 20,000 neurons and, and uh, these are all mapped out, right? Like we know yes. the connections. Yep. And all the um, genetics. And, and there's still a yep. lot. And this, you know, just to, to tell you about the difficulty of the field, we still don't know exactly how it works, even though we know every neuron and every That's connection, right. uh, we're still having to study it. But it's, it's important to be able to understand these simple networks because as a species evolved and became more, and com more complex, we didn't get rid of this hardware, we, we added onto it. So once we understand the simplicity of this, these circuits, we can start to understand the complexity. Right, it'll help us understand parts of more complex animals. So now we're looking at a lizard uh, we often talk about the lizard brain in a person, and, <laughs> yeah. and, and, uh, and, it's, and it's because of the kind of things Kim is talking about. A lot of the structures that a lizard have, has, we still have in higher mammals. Right, they're very, these very basic, uh, you know, the lizard brain. It's, it's responding and reacting to the environment, approach things that are tasty and yummy, and increase survival, and 
and and avoid things that are going that are nasty and potentially might kill us, right? So, um, the lizard brain you can see here it says it provides us with basic motivations and movements and responds primarily by reflex and instinct. And as humans, we also have these reflexive and instinctive circuits, but we also have layered on top of it um, greater um, hardware that allows us to control these instincts at times. So next up, we have the raccoon. Curious choice to represent mammal brains, which evolved <laughs> about 200 million years ago, but there you go. Um, and if anybody's ever seen a, a raccoon in their yard, you know that it's capable of uh, learning where to find your garbage, right? So uh, one thing that d differentiates lizards or mammals from lizards, for example, is mammals have more complex motivational and emotional circuitry in the brain, right? So they have very good memories. Raccoons will learn if you leave your garbage can lid open, they'll learn to come back and find your garbage again. And, and they say that it evolved 200 million years ago and the lizard was 300 million years ago. And we don't want you to get the impression that these things have stopped evolving. It's just that these are when the structures appeared and, um, and the lizard hadn't, hasn't really moved on a lot in terms of basic structure. And they're still with the basic architecture of the brain that they got 300 million years ago. And mammals are using a more, they're using an update, more recent update. And finally, what we're seeing is a, a primate brain uh, Got a picture of a rhesus monkey here, but we also have primate brains. Mm-hmm. And rhesus monkeys are very intelligent uh, organisms. They, you can see here, it's written. They recognize facial expressions. They can communicate and maintain social relationships. And that's very similar, uh, a common feature amongst primates. Like we as humans are also uh, uh, from the same family. And. Um, we have very complex social hierarchies, and you can, if you've ever seen monkeys in a, in a zoo, or apes, you can, you can see evidence of this. Uh, and it says here, I didn't know this, that uh, rhesus monkeys can lie. Uh, which, <laughs> you're kind of wondering, how are they lying? But um, I, I'm, not, I'm not even uh, sure how yeah. that, that would, yeah, maybe they, they would were like, know that. Maybe, well, maybe they're showing a dominant monkey uh, false information about where food is or something oh, like yeah, that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, what's interesting about this is that they, they're showing it like a linear progression. And, of course, evolution doesn't work pr precisely that way. Um, there are simpler creatures and, and, and more complex creatures, and often the more complex creatures came later, but it, it doesn't work in a linear line. Particularly, they, they don't have birds here because birds... Mm. separated from us and our ancestry a long time ago, but they, they independently came up with very complex mm -hmm. uh, brain structures mm -hmm. from, on a different line, right? Right, the, like the higher vocal centers, which a lot of birds, uh, shout out to my dear friend Crick Sturdy and, and Leslie Fillmore, who, who are bird uh, neuroscientists, uh, the higher vocal centers actually uh, are really important because they uh, birds can s uh, learn the songs from their parents about how to, for example, indicate threats or predation. They can sing songs that will lure other uh, potential mates to them. Uh, and that higher vocal center actually increases during the spring and summer when the, the, that song is nece necessary to um, promote courtship. So yeah, lots of complex brain regions in birds. You might have heard about people trying to train apes to, to do sign language and talk and all that. Um, but uh, a few decades ago, a woman named Irene Pepperberg 
trained her African gray parrot in a shocking number of words. If you look up Irene Pepperberg and her, her bird Alex, who is now deceased, uh, you can see some amazing videos of what Alex was able to do. We have a guy on our, uh, our street that has an African gray parrot and he, and he takes it out for walks. And uh, he'll, you know, you'll say, hi, Sky," and she'll say, hi. And apparently when he uh, walks through the door, or no, when he leaves at night and he'll say goodbye, it will respond goodbye in his wife's voice. And then if he's leaving, if the wife is leaving and, he, and she says goodbye, it'll respond goodbye in the husband's voice. <laughs> My wife had a bird growing up that would imitate the sound of the modem connecting to the internet. Oh, God, <laughs> hilarious. Oh, so finally we land on the human brain, uh, which evolved about 150,000 years ago. Uh, and we've got lots of um, information here about the, the, the different differences in the cortical structures of the human brain, uh, which are highly complex. Obviously, we've got language regions here. We've got um, more uh, enlargement of cortical regions right in the front of the brain, which is the prefrontal cortex, which is involved in planning and emotional control. But, and you can see even a representation of the different uh, hominid brains across, uh, across time, all the way from the Australopithecus afarensis all the way to the Homo sapiens, which is us. Uh, so you can see um, the shape of the skull has changed, uh, in, including the jaw. And, and this is interesting because there's still a lot of theory as to how the, the hominid brain was uh, evolved and what, what, what adaptive pressures were in place to, to allow for that involvement. And some people say it's because we, we learned fire, so we were able to cook food, and we were, had to rely less on chewing motions in order to break down fatty uh, proteins mm. or uh, proteins from meat. Uh, some people say it's because of tool use. We became more clever with our ability to manipulate tools. Some people say it's because we ate more fatty uh, fish sources as the hominid species, uh, the Homo erectus, started to, to migrate more to areas close to the shoreline. So le lots of things that we still don't know. I think know. there are about 10, 10 or so theories that are still kind of up in the air. Oh, it's yeah. very hard to find evidence for this stuff. So right here we've got a, um, an interactive part of the exhibit where you're gonna, you try to trace a star, but rather than, with a pen, but rather than looking at your hand, you're looking at your hand in a mirror. Well, what's cool about this task is yeah. that it, it is all about practice. Mm. Nobody's good at it the first time they ever do it. This is because you are um, using a, a form of memory known as procedural or implicit memory. And a lot of people don't know that there are many different or multiple memory uh, systems in the brain, right? So procedural memories are like, imagine yourself uh, learning how to ride a bike, right? So at first you're like, it's very challenging. And then once you get, you know, the expression is once you learn how to ride a bike, you, that's it, you can ride a bike for the rest of your life. And that's, you're actually engaging in those motor patterns without thinking about it. Uh, and this exhibit here, they've put procedural memory in the context of a very famous individual known as H.M. Do you know who H.M. is, Jim? I do, yeah. yeah? H.M. was a, um, somebody who had epilepsy. And Correct. they gave him an operation to try to treat the epilepsy. And they, uh, this was done at a time when we didn't know a lot about what parts of the brain did what. And they removed a part of the brain, and his epilepsy was successfully treated but there was a big, big side effect. And that side effect was he lost the ability to form new memories, or he lost, essentially, uh, he had what's called uh, 
severe anterograde amnesia and partial retrograde amnesia, which is retrograde is retro, retro memories for the past, your past, and anterior grade are memories for the future. So I want to uh, kind of put a shout out to Canadian neuroscientists because the individual, uh, uh, the individuals actually that were involved in HM's case uh, was a very famous neurosurgeon known as Dr. Wilder Penfield. Uh, the Montreal Neurological Institute uh, associated with McGill University is named uh, for the Wilder Penfield. And the individual, the neuropsychologist in, that was studying HM was a woman known as Dr. Brenda Milner. And Dr. Brenda Milner was the person who, after doing a running a battery of tests on HM, discovered that by bilateral uh, temporal lumbectomy, so essentially what that means is both sides of the brain, they removed the medial temporal lobe, so the middle of the temporal lobe, uh, they made the, the, the link between uh, that part of the brain and the ability to form new memories. Now here's the wild thing, is that HM, even though every day he walked in, uh, uh, or Brenda Milner would walk in and say, good morning HM, are you ready to run some tests today? He, he, she would have to reintroduce herself because he couldn't learn to remember, or he couldn't remember who she was. He had lost that ability to form those new memories. They gave him tasks like this, this mirror drawing task, and he was able to do it. And that showed for the first time. He would time. be able to learn how to do it, right? So yes, he, he right, would, sure. He would do it, they'd give it to him every day, yeah. and he would get better and better at it, but he would have no memory of ever doing it before. He said, I don't know why I'm so good at this. Yeah. Uh, I've never yeah. done it before. Yeah, wild. And just to give you a, an idea of how weird this is, if you've ever seen the movie Memento, it's um, about a similar condition. But as he got older, he couldn't remember, he didn't know he had this disease, right? Because he... Um, he had the accident, you can tell him every day, but he'd just forget. So he would look in the mirror when he was 60 years old and expect, expect himself to be like a 30-year-old man. Yeah. Imagine how strange that is to look and find yeah. yourself really old. And, but no matter how distressing it is, the silver, silver lining is that uh, uh, you'd forget in a couple of minutes. Yeah, well, the very sad thing about HM is that his father had died uh, a number of years before his surgery. And he was unable to remember his father's death, so he, they would have to remind him very painfully that his father had passed away. Um, Why did they feel the need to do that? <laughs> I know. <laughs> He's I just going to forget in a few yeah, minutes anyway. Telling. Anyway, I do love this aspect of these a bit. I love the the interactivity of it and being able to do myself this mirror drawing task, which I've taught so many times, and mm -hmm. it's just really cool to be to be able to do it yourself. When you were born. You could have learned to speak any of these languages. But your brain changes as you grow. And if you don't hear a sound while you're growing up, it becomes much harder to say. Come and try out some different languages. First, choose one from the menu. You'll hear a phrase, then repeat it. You can hear a recording of your voice. Try the phrase again, or move on to something a little harder. Ready? Use the control on the left to make your choice and then press the green button to begin. So this is a great uh, exhibit for the podcast because it's audio. So what we're trying to do is uh, imitate sounds from different languages. So I'm going to select Igbo. OK, and we're going to see if I can imitate the voice. OK, so I tried to imitate the voice. Now I'm going to hear myself. I'm going to hear. That's pretty good. <laughs> so you can do this with about, about six different languages. It's a lot of fun. And the, the lesson for psychology and brain science here is that um, there seems to be a critical age 
when you're very young where you can interpret all the different phonemes in the languages you hear. And a phoneme is like the very basics of a language. So m is a phoneme and oo is a phoneme. And there are certain phonemes that English doesn't have. For example, the French u is not in English and the Chinese uh is not in English. And um, you, if you don't get a lot of exposure to some of these phonemes, it's very hard to distinguish them from ones that are in your language. Um, so for example, in English, you don't ever start a word with the SR sound. Right, so like in Sri Lanka, there's no there's no English word that starts with an SR sound. So you often hear people talk about sriracha sauce. They will call it sriracha sauce because they're doing kind of an autocorrect. Here we're looking at a map of of London, and uh, we're here because they did a neat study showing that the cab drivers of London had a part of their brain that is involved with spatial navigation grow as a result of learning how to drive around London. Now London is an old city and old cities tend to have very convoluted streets. So getting around London is actually very, very complicated. And they had larger area known as the hippocampus. Yeah, so this is really wild. So they, they took a bunch of these cab drivers and scanned their brains. And what they found were, were that these London cab drivers had greater volumes of the hippocampi, or the plural for hippocampus, than uh, regular folk. And now, of course, this begs the question, did the hippocampi grow as a result of their experience with these complex navigational tasks? Or, probably a better answer, is that it's, it's more likely that individuals that are good at complex navigation are more likely to, to have a job as a cab driver, right? So if you're really bad at spatial mapping, you're probably not going to have a career as a cab, London yeah, cab you'll, driver. You'll drop out. Um, or maybe the answer is probably a bit of both, right? But uh, either way, uh, this, this study showed for the first time that you're, and they've actually replicated this with other people like typists, people who did like lots of, um, like back in the day, like the word processing, uh, have greater areas of the brain that are responsible for um, your, your control of your fingers. So musicians, you know, if you're a trombone player, you have a giant um, mouth representation in, in your somatosensory cortex. So to find out the answer to the question that Kim raised there, um, did they, do, do people with larger hippocampi end up being cab drivers or does becoming a London cab driver increase the size of your hippocampus? That would be determined by whether or not the study looked at the cab drivers before and after they became cab drivers. So if their brain grew, the hippocampus grew as a result of them learning all this, that would be evidence that it wasn't just what we might call self-selection. So those are some highlights of things we saw in the brain exhibit. I want to encourage everyone to come down to the Museum of Nature, bring your kids, bring a date, and check out Brain, the Inside Story at the Museum of Nature in Ottawa, Canada. This bonus episode of Minding the Brain was edited by me, Mike Contos, and brought to you by CKCU, the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences, and the Faculty of Science at Carleton University. Today's episode has also been brought to you by the Canadian Museum of Nature in Ottawa, in conjunction with their new exhibit, Brain, The Inside Story, which will be running until September 3rd of this year, 2018. So if you're in the Ottawa area, make sure you check it out before it's gone. Theme music for Minding the Brain is Plucked by Michael Terry. More episodes and show notes are available at mindingthebrainpodcast.com. <laughs>